Welcome to Under the Shell, presented by Testudo Times. I'm Brendan Weissel. Sam Jane. Michael Howes. And wow, it's good to be back. For you longtime listeners, you'll probably notice that we are now presented by Testudo Times. Did a little bit of work over the summer figuring out where we were going to be hosting this podcast, and we're uh, glad to have landed here. So, Yep, we can't wait to show you guys what this podcast is all about to this new fan base. So let's, right. go. let's go. Absolutely, but the story is not about us. This week, the story is about... The Fridge, Ralph Friedgen. This might be one of our best interviews. Um, so we saved it for an episode like this, a very special episode, first one of Testudo Times. That's right. So let's get to it. Take it away. Our guest is a two-time ACC Coach of the Year, was awarded the AP Coach of the Year in 2001. He led Maryland to their last conference title in 2001, is third all-time at Maryland with 75 wins, and led the football program to a school record five bowl game victories. We're pleased to have on arguably the greatest Maryland football coach, Coach Ralph Friesian. Coach, thank you for coming on. To start off with some recent news, Coach, at the beginning of the summer, it was announced that you're on the ballot for the College Football Hall of Fame. Um, first of all, congratulations. That's that's quite an honor to receive. Kind of what does that mean for you to receive an honor like that after the career that you had? Well, you know, it is it is an honor for me to be uh, nominated. be a greater honor if I got in, you know, uh, wait and see how that turns out. Uh, they should be voting here. The voting is done. It's a matter of selection now. And they're only going to pick two coaches out of, uh, I think, 11 or 12 that are up. So we'll see how that goes. I was up last year, too. You know, and then, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's just how well you're known as well for being at Maryland as opposed to the national. I had noticed, you know, in the last um, couple months or so, you've kind of started a, a new series on Instagram. Um, and YouTube, the Football by Friesian series, what motivated you to to relive those memories? Well, I was told that uh, I didn't have a big enough uh, social media presence. And my daughter has been trying to get me to do this, Katie, my younger one, who uh, works for Etsy. And is uh, you know, pretty good with computers and whatnot. So um, she came up with the idea to do this. And the problem we're having right now is uh, she's had a, she just moved into a new home. My uh, grandchildren have come down here and they're just going back. And now she has all these people from the north coming down to visit her. So uh, getting her time to finish this thing, hopefully we'll start on finishing it next week. But I've broken down all all the film. It's a matter of her putting it all together. And, and, you know, we kind of just talk off the cuff and then she makes me look good and puts it all in the right places. But it's going over very well. And a lot of people are texting me and calling me and wanting to know when the next installment's coming up. So we'll have to try to get that up as soon as possible. So where where did you kind of, you know, we obviously know you played you played football. And while at Maryland, you know, you played a lot of different positions. Um, I think I read somewhere that, uh, you know, you started at, played offensive guard, fullback. Um, but how did your football career kind of start? Like, where did that, where did that come from? You know, how did you, your dad was a coach, I believe. Like, what did you notice from him? That type of thing. Well, I came to Maryland as a quarterback and, um, I, you know, I, I played at Harris in New York and the, our rival was Rye, New York. And the, the head football coach at the Rye was John Nugent and the head football coach of Maryland was Tom Nugent. So the, they recommended me to go to Maryland. I ended up going there, and uh, then we had 
Tom Knutson got fired my first year, and Lou Saban came in my second year, and he left to go to Denver Broncos. And my third and my fourth year was Bob Ward, who ended up getting fired. He was a former Maryland player, and then um, All-American, really. And then Roy Lester came in, and I coached under him for three years. And then Jerry Claiborne came in, and I coached under him for one year. So, you know, as frustrated as I was playing in a lot of different positions for a lot of different coaches, it turned to be an asset for me when I went into coaching. Um, you know, I did student teaching, and I hated it. And I knew I wouldn't. Both my parents were teachers, and I thought that was the way I would go. But once I did it, uh, you know, I wasn't wasn't thrilled. I was a good enough student. I went to graduate school, got a graduate assistantship in the School of Public Health, and taught uh, five classes. And they, you know, they paid for my uh, my education. And um, in that time, they asked me to volunteer coach the freshman team. At that time, it was a freshman team, and uh, I ended up coaching the defense. Um, Buddy Beardmore was the freshman coach. He was also the lacrosse coach. So I had a lot of good players. I had, you know, Randy White, Kenny Troy, and Bob Avellini. And I think seven of those guys played in the NFL that were on that freshman team. And then um, Roy Lester got fired and Jerry Clayburn came in and I was fortunate enough to coach, uh, got on as a graduate assistant with him. So I was a graduate assistant for four years. And then um, learned a lot. And then Bobby Ross, who was on that staff, um, hired me to go to the Citadel with him. As head, he was the head coach and hired Frank Beamer and myself to go with him. All right. So uh, we, you, we were making, as a graduate assistant, I was making 150 a month with no room or boards. And that was a little difficult to survive. Uh, and then we got go to the Citadel, and we were making $11,000 a year. So we were doing great, Frank and I were. Oh, that was in 1973. $150 a month. That's a, that's a, that's a high salary right there. Um, really? Yeah. We only worked about 20 hours a week, 20 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> if you had to say from all the coaches that you've played for, coached for, interacted with, which was the one that you would say had the best influence on your coaching career? My father, probably. Um, my father was very innovative. Uh, he believed in multiple formations with, with as many personnel groups as possible. And, but he wanted to run the same plays from all the different formations. And back in the 60s, that was like unheard of. And then he kind of trained me, you know, subconsciously. My father would was a high school coach, and when I became probably was uh, junior high through high school, he would get the tickets to either a New York Giants game or to the at that time the New York Titans, which later became the Jets. And um, he'd get a press pass and he'd scalp up his ticket for me, so we wouldn't even sit together. He uh, played at Fordham. And we would drive to Fordham in the Bronx and then take a subway to the Yankee Stadium to see the Giants or Polo Grounds to see the Titans. And then afterwards, we'd, we'd go home and he'd be asking me questions and kind of educating me without me even knowing it. And um, I kind of find myself doing the same thing with my grandkids. 
but um, you know, I, I started a quarterback when I was a sophomore, and I think after the third game, I I called all my own plays for, for my junior and senior year. So, but it was pretty much the plays he would have called anyway. I was so trained by him, but I picked up you know things from everybody I've been with. Um, I think you know, Coach Claiborne and I had a. I was the I was the last guy hired to to work with Coach Clayman as a graduate assistant. Dick Redding and um, and Bobby Ross had to convince him to to hire me for the fall. I, I worked for him for the spring while I was doing my thesis, and then um, he wasn't going to hire me. And then they went in and actually got him to hire me. And but I got all the dirty jobs. I had to um, go to down to D.C. at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning to pick up the film because he wanted, he watched it on Sundays. This was Saturday after the game. So I, I'd be getting up like at 3 or so and then going down there and uh, pick up the film and then bring it into him. And then we'd sit and watch the film from 5 o'clock to 10 o'clock. So that was an unbelievable experience. Coach Claiborne was a, he was a defensive-minded coach but we would sit there and watch offense, defense, and special teams. And I did that for for 10 weeks. He'd go to church at, at 10, and then I would I would start in on the game, the, the uh, scouting reports and everything. And then it was my job before I left the building to check the the, sauna, the saunas and the steam room and everything that the wrestlers used. And Coach Claiborne had a deal with, with Sully Krause, who was the wrestling coach, He'd let the football players use that on Sundays to get the, a lot of the soreness out, but to make sure I shut it, shut it off. And so it was my job to go. We were up the top of Cole Fieldhouse at the time and where the football offices were, and I had to go all the way down and check if the, um, the sauna and the steam were off and not shut it off. And then, So I got out of there about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. I, I had gotten up at about 3. So they got their hundred and fifty dollars worth just in that one day. So, but it was something I loved doing. You know, you have to understand that. Um, you know, my son-in-law said to me, "I don't know how you did what you did." And I said, "Well, you have to find something you're passionate about." And I always felt like my players might try to get them to find out something they were passionate about because then it's not work. And no matter how much money you make, if if you're doing it and you enjoy doing it, you do it well, you'll make a good living. And uh, that's once I got into coaching, you know, with the freshman team at, at Maryland, I knew what I wanted to do. It was just a matter of getting hired. I got turned down from probably 10 or 12 high school jobs and a couple of Shepherd, was Shepherd College. I got turned down a couple of small colleges. So kind of came out of the blue that Coach Ross told me he was going to visit the Citadel and, um, uh, and he asked me if, if 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 he got the job, would I come with him? They came back and called Frank Beamer and uh, what the benefits were. We have insurance and this and that. Frank's looking at me like we're you know you're crazy. We're making one hundred fifty dollars a month, and he's offering us eleven thousand a year. We thought we struck it rich, but um, yeah, it was. Uh, we we laugh about it now, you know after our careers are over. So, yeah, I mean, you, you truly kind of worked your way up and you had coached about um, many different schools and many different positions, but then you, you kind of always found your way back to Maryland and then you eventually get the Maryland head coaching job. So 
how did that come to be that you, you ended up at the uh, head coaching at Maryland? Well, I tried to get it when Bobby left, you know, when he left to go to, uh, originally he was going to go to the Buffalo Bills and then at the last second went, changed his mind and went to Georgia Tech. And then uh, I tried to get it after we uh, went to the Super Bowl when I was with him at San Diego. I thought I would get it. and I did, didn't even get an interview. So, um, you know, we had, when I was at Georgia Tech with George O'Leary, we played Maryland. It was it was Maryland's last game, I believe, and it was our second to last game. We had to play Georgia after Maryland, and um, you know, I I had I wasn't really paying any attention to Maryland, and um, you know, we went out to to play against them, and, and uh, Ron Vandalin came over me and started going over the whole team. I knew what he was. You know, everybody was looking at us like I didn't know what the heck he was doing, and you know, I he I always he was respectful for him. I thought he, you know, he was always nice to me. I didn't have any problems. But um, we we won that day, and then um, I guess the next day, Debbie Al had called George O'Leary and asked for permission to talk to me, and um, but George said I don't want you to talk to talk to to them this week because uh, we're playing Georgia. And that was always a big game for us. So um, I, I told my agent to, to, do, to do all the talking with him. I, I didn't want to be involved in it. So he called me like, like on Tuesday and said that they're looking for a head coach. So I pulled your name out of the hat. I said, fine, I don't want to be bothered with it anymore. I'm tired with dealing with marijuana. So then Thursday, she called me up on my phone. I was still in the office. And she said, we're interested in you if you're interested in us. And to be honest with you, I said, you know, I don't need you pulling my chain. If you're seriously interested, I'd be interested. But if you're not, I'd rather not get involved. So she said, I'm interested enough. I'd like to interview you Sunday after the game. I said, where? She said, in Marriott in Atlanta. I'll fly down there. She said, what time can we do it? I said, well, I, I need to grade the film. Probably can do it about 2 o'clock. So I met with her from 2 to about 5.36. She had a plane to catch. I drove her to the airport. The interview went very well. She, she told me to fly up the next day. Kind of all went down real fast after that. You know. So that first season with Maryland in 2001, you're now taking over a program that had not had a winning season in over five years. And then you lead that team. 16 years. 16 years. 16 years. So then you guys go out and you win 10 games your first season. What was your first steps in rebuilding and kind of reshaping that program to have the success that they ended up having? Well, (laughs) there were quite a few things. Um, you know, first of all, we were we were really had an archaic film system that we were about twenty five years behind the time. What was the film system? Just so we like, because was now they were on uh, they were on like um, Betamax or uh, not Betamax, but uh, it was a digital. It wasn't digital. It was um, it was like you had the discs and stuff. You just put it in. Um, I had been, I had helped 
negotiate a deal at Georgia Tech to buy Pinnacle, or it later became Exos, and um, that was over a million dollars just to do the, the digital system. And then the next year, they it, it went got so more advanced in, in one year that they wanted us to buy a new one. So I went to George O'Leary, who was the head coach, and I said, you know, they want us to buy another one. So we just spent a million dollars on the last one. I said, they'll, they'll buy it back. But, you know, so he said, you got to go see Homer. I'll let you deal with it. So I went and saw Homer Rice, who was the AD. And he said, I don't think we can pay cash for it. He said, um, you think they'll let us buy it on time? That's all I got to ask. And so I, they they did. And um, so I had some, I had a relationship with these people. So when I told Dr. Yao what I, I needed to do, I said, I need at least three coaching stations. She said, well, if you take the job, we'll, we'll get you everything you need. Well, she had no idea of what it cost. So I said to her, I said, uh, all right. And that was the minimum I felt I needed. And uh, so I went to, at that time, it was Pinnacle, I believe. And they said, well, I'll tell you what. We'll give you 24 stations for $750,000 if you win that you endorse us. And I said, I'll do that. So we got probably a $2 million situation for $700,000. And at the coaches clinic, I, I was I was their guest, and the, the line was out the door around the corner, you know, because they they thought I had the secret, you know. But um, that was one of the things, you know. There were we had a we had a, a meal problem when I was interviewed. The kids weren't getting enough to eat. That was a whole other deal. I had to get that squared away, and with the help of the dining hall service and 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 Doctor Yao, we were able to solve that problem. So there was. Now, when you take a, a new job, you add up the pluses and minuses. It's not, there's reasons other than coaching why you didn't, why the, the other guy didn't win. And basically, you're going to have the same kids. But you, so, what are the things that, what are the negatives that you can turn around and make them positives, or at least be neutral? And that's what I kind of tried to do. And the other thing was I had to put people in the stands. Nobody was going to the games. And um, so I, I tried. My theory was we had such a large contingent of Maryland people in, in an hour radius of our school. If I could get out and meet the people and, and convince them of our program, that we would be able to fill the stadium. And you know, just last week I, I learned that at the year I left Maryland, of the top twenty-five biggest crowds in Maryland's history, we had nineteen in my era. And then now I think they've gone to 30, the 30 largest crowds. But this, I'm st we're still at 19. But the five that have gone ahead of us are all against Ohio State, Penn State, or, or Michigan. So you don't know how many people are coming from those schools to help fill the stadium. You see what I'm saying? So I, I was pretty successful in getting that done, too. Now, I also inherited a bunch of kids that were so tired of being five and six and not going to bowl games uh, that, you know, I said this on the 
on the uh, show we're doing that they, their goal for the first season was to win six games, which, to be quite honest, I was I was kind of crushed that that's all I wanted to win. And uh, But I, I understood it because six wins to them represented a bowl game. And we had to win our – the sixth game was the Georgia Tech game, which was a hard game for me because I just come from coaching those guys on the other side, you know. And I knew them like I, I knew the home team. So, plus O'Leary was a really good friend of mine. And, you know, it's always tough playing against your friends. So, um, but we won that game and we were 6-0. and And then I told them in the locker room after the game, time to change our goals. Time to change, think about winning the conference championship. And we were able to do that. And uh, so, you know, the question was, you know, what did you do? Well, I tried to take away as many of the negatives as possible. I was fortunate enough to hire a good coaching staff. And the the administration at that time was giving me such support. was really, really, really helpful for us. So we had a good thing going. We had everything pulling in the right direction. One of the things I've heard you talk about in, in kind of improving a team, and when you look back at some of the other Maryland teams, is um, doing things to eliminate mistakes against yourself or you know avoid beating yourself. And you know, I know I've heard you talk about that, but what kind of things do you do to like instill in a team that um, it's important to make plays and, and truly eliminate all those mistakes? Well, I can tell you this. Okay, two thousand nine, I went two and ten, and we had the highest turnover ratio. I think we were second highest in the country. Okay, two thousand and ten. That was two thousand nine. Two thousand and ten. We were the second lowest in the country. So that's the difference of what, seven games? And what I did was right during winter workouts, we, we took a towel and we taped it up like a football and we did drills for five minutes every day how to protect the football, you know, so it became almost instinctive. On the defensive side of the ball, how, how we strip the ball, how we get interceptions, how, you know, how you know all of the all of this ball security things we you know to take away the ball, so you work at you know you, you make it an emphasis, and um, when you see a guy run through the line and automatically he, he moves the ball away from the, from a tackler and has it high and tight or protects his arm going through, and they do those things without thinking, or if he's running down the sidelines and he puts the ball on the outside arm as opposed to his dominant arm. So you can do things to help yourself. Now, you know, one of the things, the other things is penalties. You know, penalties kill you. If you usually win the penalty battle, you got a good chance of winning the game. You win the turnover battle and the penalty battle, you're doing you're gonna have a great chance of winning the game. But right now when I, I talk to Mike Loxley probably once a week during the season. And they have a lot of penalties that's killing them. And that's what they got to eliminate. Now, it's a different day and time. I, I'd run the team, you know. If a guy had a, the guy was uh, had a penalty, maybe it's an offensive penalty. The whole offense would run because the whole offense is suffering during the game too, you know. And pretty soon you get peer group pressure. You did it today. They probably jump in the transfer portal. You wouldn't have a team, but. You know, I would probably wouldn't care about it because if they're doing that, they don't really care about winning anyway. But um, 
you know, I know Mike talks to me about penalties like holding or clipping or something. Those those are penalties. I mean, I he he says those are going to happen. I don't I don't believe that. I I I I heard coaching the Giants say that it must be a Nick Saban thing because both of those guys coach with Saban. But to me, I didn't want penalties at all. Then I didn't want sacks and I didn't want drops. No, because you know when I was being interviewed with with the players. Um, the best question I got in all the interviews was uh, one of the boys said to me, so what are you going to do to make us win that the other coaches couldn't do? And my answer to him was, I'm going to teach you how not to lose. Because if you let the other team beat themselves, you're going you're gonna to gain confidence and you're going to play better than you had before. It's kind of what happened. Our first game was against North Carolina. The first play went for a 75-yard touchdown. You know, so everybody's going, oh, here we go again. In fact, my defense coordinator got on the film, got on the phone and said to me, am I fired? I said, we got 59 more minutes. I'll let you know after the game. So that's the last touchdown they scored. They end up having more penalties than us, more turnovers than us. So we beat them. They were a ranked team at the time. So I think you can coach that. I really do. And then, and and Mike still does it. It's uh, the – the degree of error, 12, 12% is the magic number. If you're under 12%, you usually win. If you're over 12%, I've won, but, you know, you usually go, you know, the odds go against you once you get over 12%. And the way you do that is you take the number of errors divided by the total number of plays and you come up with the percentage, you know, so. Uh, I mean, you mentioned how you, you talked to, to Loxie now about some of the um, penalty stuff and just general coaching. Do you talk to him uh, a lot about just kind of the team, the, the, the program building stuff, I guess? Um, has he talked to you about, I guess, how much uh, maybe the program has, has changed with um, Big Ten and NIL and stuff like that? Well, I think that, I think there's positives for the big, you know, I did a guy call me the other day from USA Today. You know, he, he wanted me to, I think he had the story already written and he was just trying, wanting me to validate it. You know, he kept saying that you wanted to stay in the ACC. And I said, yeah, traditionally I wanted to stay in the ACC, but I said, financially, I can understand why they did. And they have a lot more things now than I had. You know, they've got a beautiful facility. They should, you know, they got, we had trouble feeding them. Now they've got, what do they call them? Uh, something station, fertilizer, you know, um, revitalization stations or whatever. But uh, so they, they have they have 29 coaches, you know, we had nine. I mean, it's 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 a totally different thing. And I, I don't know if it's not a tougher job now because of the NIL and the transfer portal and, and uh, you know, I talked to Mike well, a couple of, I guess it's been about a month or two ago, Said he's out raising money. He says that's all I do now is raise money. And so I used to have to raise money too, but it was for a different reason. I was trying to trying to get us to be a Division One program. <laughs> I said you got no no longer do you talk about getting an education and and um, getting internships and getting a job. Now it's you know how much you're going to pay me. And I I don't know if that that's the right way to go myself, but uh, it is what it is. It's just a Different age, you know, different whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, like it's, that's reality almost now. 
Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's, I don't, there's two things that, you know, I coach in the NFL too. And at least there, there was a contract. You know what I'm saying? I said, and what I worry about is, you know, these kids transferring, some of them are transferring three and four times. Well, every time you transfer, you, you lose credits. So, you know, now all of a sudden we're not interested in how much, how many graduate, you know? I mean, uh, how, how many of these guys are transferring all the place to get a degree? They may, they, they may feel like they don't have a degree, but they're going to they're gonna eventually get taxed on this money. And they're also going to get, if they start getting taxed on that, what, what happens when they start taxing their scholarship? A lot of those guys, that's, that scholarship is probably worth $120,000, $130,000 a year because they go to summer school and they go to winter session. You know, and they get this out-of-state tuition for those guys that are out-of-state. So that runs up the, the money pretty good, you know. That's only about, that's going to happen sooner or later, you know. Then they might all, and then now you, the other thing I see coming in now, now these guys are getting suspended for uh, for, for betting because now they got money, you know. And that, how long does it take before the, the bad influences start getting involved in that, you know. You know, kind of talking about current day now, um, Loxley and the whole program. Nowadays, you can be seen around Maryland football and the program, but it wasn't always like that after you departed from Maryland. Kind of what has led you back to being around the program and embracing Maryland football again? Well, uh, I, I think it was a couple of things. Um, I have a senior moment right now. The one coach that invited me back, um, Durkin. Durkin brought me back to speak at a, at a clinic for him. And then I think uh, uh, Evans has been a big help in, in bringing me back. And then, of course, Mike. You know, Mike coached under me, and we've remained close for quite a while. So I, I would like to see him be successful. What about, you know, in that, because you had so much success um, in terms of that, uh, you know, from that like early 2000s era and you kind of like you started off super hot and then kind of hit like a low point and then you kind of brought your brought it back out. Um, what happens or can you take us through um, the situations of like, you know, what ended up with you getting bought out and things like that? Like what went down in that situation? What happened? Like, what was your reactions when that season happened? Because I remember reading, you know, doing research that a lot of people were pretty shocked and upset with the decision. Can you kind of take us through for Maryland fans what happened maybe? Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you'll go back and you'll look at my record, not only at Maryland, but other places, when I've had a quarterback, a good quarterback, I've been really successful. And, and, you know, not that we weren't recruiting kids, but some we hit that midsection where our quarterbacks weren't as, as good as the previous ones. You know, we kind of locked into Scotty McBride because he actually transferred and essentially walked on. And then I watched all the tape and I saw him as, on the scout team. And I, I think it was three weeks after he was here, I told me to get a scholarship as soon as I had one available. And I think he's one. What? Scott was on. Scott was on the podcast. He's a friend of the friend of the show. He spoke very glowingly about you. Yeah, well, I was I was hard on him too. So, but um, you know, he he won twenty one games for us. You know, and that 
And then, you know, actually when Sean Hill, you know, uh, the, the other quarterback that started the year before McCoy, he kind of quit and went to basketball. And I just stayed with Sean. And Sean was a winner. I mean, he, he ended up playing like 13 years in the NFL. And you don't do that. You know, he just wins games. He's One guy said he didn't like the way he throws. Yeah, I told him it wasn't a beauty contest. It was a guy, how efficient you could be. And that was Sean. He would find a way to win. And um, and we, you know, I, I just, you know, when I came in, we had about, we had a lot of guys that liked just being on the team. They didn't want to work to be a good team. And I never cut anybody. I didn't, I, I didn't like that in the NFL, but we had guys that just didn't want to put the work in. And I worked them my first year there. I mean, 24 periods every day. And those kids, you know, they just, they wanted to win very badly. And they were very talented, but they, it had, had to be brought out. And we had to play smart football, which we did. And I had good coaches. So, you know, then we lost a couple of our coaches, and that hurt, hurt, hurt us too. To, to, to get into the whole thing with Anderson, I went out to eat with him about, I don't know, maybe two weeks before he fired me. He, he told me that they were thinking of going to the Big Ten. And that I had no idea about that. And he wanted to know what I thought about it. And I said, I didn't think a whole lot of it. You know, but he wasn't talking about, he didn't talk to me about the money situation either. He just said, that, you know. And then I think he had other people in his ear. I think. I think uh, there's a lot of people, you know, at Maryland that are still employed at Maryland that were in his ear. And then I, th- I don't, I think um, Kevin Plank might have been in his ear. He wanted uh, uh, Mike Leach, and uh, Mike Leach would not have worked out at Maryland. But, but uh, so, you know, I guess when we beat Virginia, and we were assured of having, I think, at least seven wins. Anderson came out and said, he, you know, he was going to finish my contract. And then he called me in after recruiting one day and said that he was he was going to let me go and they were, you know, they were going to do something else. You know, that turned into a whole fiasco because it was, he told me on a Wednesday night, I did my radio show on Wednesday night. I got up the next morning and flew to Norfolk to recruit Travis Hughes' brother, Trenton used his brother Travis. And then uh, when I got back there, uh, Franklin was going to leave and go to uh, Vanderbilt. And Anderson wanted me to go on the radio and talk about Franklin. I said, Why don't we, what do we want to do that for? And anyway, I, I really told him I didn't want to do that. I said, let's just put a statement out. And then he um, he said he called me up and said that he he didn't want me to be on that phone call, and uh, it was one of these you know you dialing phone calls. <clears throat> so I was actually on the phone with our SID guy, and he was I was just when I when I would do an interview, I, I would have the SID guy quiz me, prepare me for the questions that could come up, you know. And so I was getting quizzed when he left a voice message for me. But I dialed into the phone call and listened to what he said. 
and they were the first question was how do you think the season is went with Maryland and that's that year we were we were eight and four at the time we were going to go to military bowl which we never should have went to we should have went to a champ sports bowl or one of the bowls in Florida I don't know what the deal they cut there but that was a screw up but anyway the um, he said well we had a good year but you know I'm looking to have a great year that's what he, what he said so then the next question was well how do you feel like Coach Friedgen's going to be and they said well so I'll, I'm going to talk about that next week this was like on a Friday so everybody now, all of a sudden, ESPN's got it on. You know, it just blew up. Now, I'm at, I got a recruiting weekend that weekend, <laughs> you know. So I got parents. I, plus, I never had a chance to talk to my staff. So all of a sudden, now my staff's wanting to know what the hell is going on. I just think the whole thing was handled wrong. And then, you know, they want me to coach the bowl game, which I was happy to do. And then uh, while I'm coaching the bowl game, they're bringing Mike Leach in the interview. And that went over like a lead balloon when the, the professors and everything started talking to Mike Leach. You know, he started talking how great uh, academically Texas Tech is. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think so. So then all of a sudden now he's, now he's really out. And so Randy Etzel just got beaten in the BCS bowl. And uh, he hired Randy. I tried to, I coached with Randy. I tried to help him out. He didn't want to listen. He said everything I brought up to him was, uh, oh, we did that at Connecticut. Oh, we did that at Connecticut. Fine. Maryland's a different place, you know. That's why Mike has a chance. He's He's been there. He knows the, he knows the pluses and the minuses. And, you know, so, you know, he's, he's the most prepared guy to take that job. You know, because everybody thinks it's like every every other job, and it isn't. So, I think you have to have some inside knowledge of what's going on. Yeah, you know? I read that they almost had Franklin, or it was reported that Franklin was kind of the coach in waiting. How much do you he think was. that he was? Do you, you know that? Oh, I know he was the coach in waiting. You know, they kind of jumped in on the last one on that deal too. But so how I was much- I? I had, I really didn't have a problem. I, I wanted to coach two more years. When we went two and nine, I had 36 freshmen. Okay. Two and 10. Then the next year we go nine and four, and I got 36 sophomores. What do you think we're going to be when they're 36 juniors and 36 seniors? You know what I'm saying? And then what happened was they brought in Etzel and they all quit or got thrown off the team. You know, there's a couple guys playing in the NFL right now that you got to let go, you know? So, I mean, that, all of a sudden, they, then now they're two and ten again. You know, because Franklin left for Vanderbilt, and then they kind of had to scramble for. You know, Leach was a candidate, but he had just gone through some scandals at Texas Tech, and then they hired Etzel, and then obviously there was a whole run there where everyone was kind of there was no good stretches of Maryland football. Did selfishly, you know, because obviously this is your former program, and, and you were at other places. Did selfishly like. It felt like kind of validation for you to like, they didn't want to like, you know, support me through when I brought them through the good times. And now, like, as soon as I kind of was on the downturn, it was, well, we got to go somewhere else. How much of like validation did it provide to you maybe that other coaches were struggling way more than you were? And then, 
you know, you came back with Rutgers and beat Maryland. What was that like? And, and what was that, that, that stretch of Maryland football like for you from afar? Well, I watched every game. My wife would not, she went to the movies every Saturday. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but I, you know, I followed them. They were my players. You know what I'm saying? In fact, when I would, when I went to coach at Rutgers and came back, it was senior night. And I'm sitting up there, and they're all my kids that I recruited. So I'm sitting there going, you know, I should be doing this. These are the kids I recruited, you know. And then you got to play against them, you know. And it's 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 kind of crazy. I'm we're getting our butts beat in the first half, and I'm looking at I'm looking at the the, the play sheet and figuring out how to make a damn first down. And then I look up and I see all these highlights. I'm what the heck. They're showing that stuff for, and they didn't even realize me. But then my told me afterwards that they did a, a film thing for me, you know. And then, we, we, you know, it was two minutes to go in the game. We were driving, and we took a loss, and we had a we ended up having a punt with about I think there was about a minute to go and a half, and that's a rush the punter. And got a rough in the punter call. So we got a first down. We were down 25 points at that point. And we went down and scored. So we made it a 17-point game. So I went in at halftime. And I just told the Rutgers guys, I said, look, we're leaving a lot of plays on the field. I said, um, we got to throw the ball better. we got to catch the ball better. we got to protect better. I said, because I said, the second half, I'm emptying the playbook. And we're either going to get beat real, real bad, or we're going to win this game. <laughs> and um, we came out. We returned the kickoff about 60 yards and got in field position, went down and scored. Now it's a 10-point game. And we had the momentum. And so we ended up getting it there and ended up pulling it out and won the game. And... Um, it's kind of interesting because they had the 84 team there when I was um, coaching the Maryland offensive coordinator under Bobby Ross. And we had to come back at Miami. We were 31 nothing, came back and won. And all those guys were telling me they were, they were up there in the press box and they all huddled to one side. He said, you're going to do it. You know, so they were actually pulling for Rutgers. That's pretty funny. Was that post-game handshake? Did you go down onto the onto the field and talk with any of the player, former players, or anything, or coaches? I actually, um, I actually had a couple of players come over to see me, and they were. This is how weird it was. First of all, when I come out of the press box, because I was in the press box, the fans there was there must have been about two hundred fans, was kind of chanting my name. And the Rutgers coach is going, what are you, a rock star? I said, hardly. They fired my ass. So I said, uh, then then I, w I went and did a media thing after the game. And then there were about three or four players from Maryland that came over to see me after the game. And they 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 were like, we got to do this quick, coach, because we don't want Ipsil to see us because we'll get in trouble, you know. And that's that's unbelievable, but. But yeah, I won't, I won't say their names because they might, they might still get in trouble. But there was about three or four of them that came over. And a couple of them I didn't see because I was in the press conference, but Gloria talked to them. You know? But everything I did, he, he kind of wiped out. You know? 
they used to have my name for when the coach here on about the 30-yard line, and I was told that's what got them all moved off. Now they have me over a bathroom, and I think in the far end zone, which is probably pretty apropos. <laughs> you you kind of talked about, you know, when you were talking about Coach Loxley, about how he understands what makes Maryland different. And I just kind of want to get a perspective from a coach who, you know, played here and, and now coached there. What What is so hard about Maryland for some coaches to understand? Like, why is the job so different? When I was coaching there, we only got 13 academic conceptions. So out of 25 guys you recruit, okay, 12 of them have to be regular admits into Maryland. Where the NCAA, you had to have a 2-0 and, you know, I think it was an 800 SAT to get into most schools. Now, I think that's changed since I was there, but that's what we were dealing with, you know. Um, there were a lot of other things that really kind of came about if you know Maryland's history from Len Bias, you know, and they were still there. And I was there at Len Bias, 1986. I mean, I was in my office at five o'clock in the morning when the sirens rang all throughout campus. So, um, and the, everything changed right after that, you know, football and basketball. But uh, there were there were a lot of different restrictions that you just had to deal with. You know? I'll tell you this, if, if a kid had, had not qualified by the NCAA by signing date, we had to give that kid a letter, okay, saying what he had to get in his spring semester to be eligible to be a, a special admit into Maryland. So here, picture yourself. You're a Division One player. You've got 25 scholarship offers. But you got one letter that has a butt to it. You know what I'm saying? What do you think your chances of getting that kid is? You know, so those are just some of the things that, you know, I don't know if they do that anymore or not. But I know, I know that we had, we had a higher entrance level than any other school in the ACC at that time. And maybe in college football. Do you think like the area plays a role too? Like being that it's, there's, you know, Maryland is kind of in a unique area that, you know, some coaches come from like, like Connecticut or like Durkin came from Michigan and Maryland's just such a different place in terms of, you know, the support for, and, and where it is. I learned with Coach Claiborne, you can put people in the stands there, but you, you, not only do you have to win, but you have to be entertaining. You have to have to be for the entertaining dollar. And some of the things that I, I would always be amenable to the press. In fact, Heather Dennett talked to me when I got nominated for the Hall of Fame. And, you know, we, we had our kind of run-ins when she was there. But she said, you know, no one does what you did anymore. Because I've met with the press three times a week. I met with them on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday after practice in my office. So they had access to – I would appoint coaches to, to buy into the opponent's um, media and so much stuff that you would get off the internet. People would talk, you know, like going to practice and stuff. So I told I told MGM people, I'd let you go to practice. But one thing, as soon as something comes up on the internet that I don't want on the internet, practice is closed. <laughs> you know, and they were pretty good about that because they knew I wasn't fooling around. You know, I think I think Maryland is better now than in that light because of the, the Big Ten. I mean, in order for them to compete, 
I try to recruit guys that want to transfer from Penn State. I know this one kid ended up going to Baylor. He was at Penn State for three years, and they would, Maryland would only take th three courses for that kid and out of three years of being at Penn State. So don't tell me about how these Big Ten schools are all, you know. Sammy Maldonado, who came from Ohio State, he had 42 hours they wouldn't take. So he had to really bust his hump to get eligible, you know. So it's, you know, it's, you know, he, he told me that Ohio State, the coach taught, taught a football class in the spring, and all they did was put the installation in for spring practice. You know, these are the differences I'm talking about. You know? For our last segment here, we're going to do our rapid fire segment. We do this with every single guest we have on. We're going to ask you a couple questions. You just give us your quick response, or if you want to give a story, that also works. So to start this off, who was the favorite player you've ever coached? I would have to say probably Joe Hamilton. Joe Hamilton. Are there That's any right. other ones in your head right now? Well, I don't. Yeah, I also have to put uh, EJ Henderson right there with him too. You know, he EJ was a little different than Joe. There's so many. That's a very hard question for me. Sean Jones was another one. Um, Scott McBrien, Bruce Perry. I mean, I mean, I. I kind of treated all my players like they were my sons. So that doesn't mean I was always easy on them, you know. How about your most underrated player? No question, Joe Volano. I took him. He was a two-star kid because he went against this five-star kid in camp, whipped his butt every time. And the, and the public gave me grief and the coaches gave me grief. And he ended up being an All-American at Maryland, so – who was the hardest player to coach against? The hardest player to coach against? Oh, wow. The hardest player to coach against. Quarterback Rivers at uh, NC State, we beat him three times. Uh, Ryan at Boston College, we beat him. Wilson, we beat him. Uh, it was one other one that played a lot. So we, we had a lot of success against really good quarterbacks. Um, Probably uh, Peppers, I would say, from North Carolina. Julius Peppers. Julius Peppers. How about your favorite play call you've ever made? <laughs> I would say my favorite play call that I ever made was in, in the NFL. We were on the half-yard line, backed up, third down and eight, and we hit it for a 99-yard touchdown. And the, and the court, Stan Humphrey said to me, I thought you were out of your mind calling that play. So, yeah, that was, that was, I think it's still got to be a record. I know 99 yards is a record, but I think mine was 99 yards and two, two feet. <laughs> How about your favorite post game snack? Whatever my wife was having at the, oh, it would, it would have to be, she'd, she'd pick up fried chicken. My wife would, you know, she would do these tailgates for everybody, you know, and um, so she ended up, they always send them some chicken in for me after the game. What was the most frustrated you've ever gotten at a practice or a game? <laughs> no. Anyone we didn't play very well. You know, I told the press, I said, you know, I'm a very emotional guy. You're going to see me very upset if we don't have a good practice. I'm gonna. If we have a good practice, I'm probably gonna be lighthearted, crack a lot of jokes, 
If I'm upset about something, you might even see me cry and get emotional. So you just need to treat me fairly and I'll be fine. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a good loser and I'm, I'm a perfectionist. So if we don't practice the way I can, like my kids, my players will tell you this. If we didn't have a good period in practice, I would say start the period over. They would hear that, and they'd all start singing, start the period over. They still say that. If it wasn't good enough, we did it again. Did you actually burn your diploma after you left Maryland? I was on a radio station making fun, and I said, they asked me something about Maryland, and I said, yeah, I burned my diploma, and I'm flying a Georgia Tech flag. And um, the Georgia Tech people picked up on this you know, and their, their ingenuity. So they had a they had a thing sent out on the internet with me burning my diploma and the Georgia Tech flag flying behind me and they sent all the alumni on that. So that upset a lot of people. But um, my wife got upset with me. She said, you never should have said that. I said, well, I'm waiting to tell them I'm going to burn my, my two kids' diplomas too. So just relax, you know. <laughs> See, you know, you got to have a little color in your life, right? I mean, I mean, I just got fired. I mean, I, why can't I say that? I thought it was hilarious <laughs> when I read the clips. I thought it was a great, great joke. <laughs> um, I just want to know to add on to Mike. So I got we got worst locker room opposing team locker room. Oh, I can tell you that there's, there's a couple of them. They used to be Virginia was the worst. Now they have I they redid their stadium, but. It was so bad you couldn't dress in the locker room. It was that small. And then, I don't know, I haven't been to Duke in a while, but Duke used to have a bad one, too. They had the two worst, I think, in the AC. And Maryland's visiting team is probably the next worst. <laughs> um, and then what was your favorite win when you were at Maryland? My favorite win was probably um, the NC State game or the Georgia Tech game, just by the way we went, won the game, you know. The, the NC State game was – we didn't play really well, especially the first half. And I was worried about that because we had beaten Clemson and we assured ourselves a tie for the ACC. So if we went down and got beat by NC State, we still would have uh, been a tie for the, for the Atlantic Coast Conference. But Florida State had beaten us, so they would go to the BCS Bowl. I wanted to go to the BCS Bowl. So um, – I would say that game was, was was pretty rewarding, yeah. And then in the old ACC, what was the coach that you had the best relationship with and then the worst relationship? The best relationship? Uh, I, I would say uh, the, the guy that was at Duke, um, Cutcliffe, was, we had a very good relationship. He, I, you know, Bobby Bowden, I, I, would, I wouldn't say I had a bad relationship with him. It's just that, um, you know, he would never – he would. He never called me by my name. He always called me Bubba, you know. And even when I was coaching, I was a coordinator. He'd say, "Well, Georgia Tech's got a good coordinator. Bubba's over there. It's pretty good, you know." And so they'd ask me about him, and I see the old man, you know. So we kind of went back and forth. And then after I, I started going to the Peach Bowl because I won the Bobby Dodd Award. And he was there one day, and he called me Ralph, and I said. You know, it's the first time you have ever called me by my first name. 
no, other than Bubba. But uh, I, you know, most of the coaches in the ACC, probably Al Groh is the one who really I probably didn't like the most, to be honest with you, just because he's a Virginia guy. And he tried to pull all kinds of, you know, he. Uh, when my first year back, Maryland hadn't beaten Virginia in 10 years, which I find really hard to believe. And we we beat them that day. And then the next day, go down, we go down there to play. And, I, you know, I, I don't really like going out and meeting the coach before the game, but I do it because it's traditional. And he, he, didn't, he wouldn't come out and shake my hand. So I told my wife, that's the last time I will ever go out to shake his hand, ever. And then, um, and then, and we had a game against them in Maryland on a Thursday night. And in fact, this is coming up in the in the um, on the series. And it was like fifteen or sixteen wind chill factor. There was a forty mile an hour wind, and he was going to outsmart us. On it. he won the toss and elected to to um, take the ball. No. He elected to kick off. So we're going to get the ball both times. So he figures he's going to kick it with the win. I took the win. That's what he did. So he took the win. I took the ball. And he was saying, okay, you're not going to be able to drive the ball against us because you got a 40-mile-an-hour win and it's 16 degrees out. The only problem was we went 80 yards and scored a touchdown on him. Now that by the time the quarter changed, now I, I had to win. And we went up fourteen to nothing. We ended up winning that game, and uh, that was that was also the uh, gladiator game. That's a whole other interesting story. But uh, you know, we started off that year. We lost to Northern Illinois, and then I think we lost to Florida State early, and then we were like one and two, and um, we started we started getting going after that, and. Um, we were coming down to this big game with, with Virginia. Chess Atkinson, who was a place kicker for us in the 80s, was also a, a TV guy. And he did fridge TV with me. I was kind of doing I was kind of doing podcasts before podcasts were podcasts. And I don't know if you should look up fridge TV sometime and see a lot of stuff too. But um, he said he had put together this film of our season. And he wanted to show it to me, and he showed it to me, and I, I was, I was really moved by the film. So I said, I like to show this to our team before the game, but I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt our normal schedule on a Friday night. So I said, we'll come in and eat, or we'll come in and sit down and eat, then we'll get up, and we'll show the film, and we'll go back and eat. So we do that. The kids get up. No one had a, no one made a sound at all. So I think this thing went over like a lead balloon. In fact, it was like, it was eerie, you know, nobody said anything. So we went through the whole Friday. At that time, it was um, Wednesday night because it was a Thursday night game. We go to the stadium. We're going to go down Turf Alley. And I get off the bus. And about 10 kids come up to me to go, Coach, can we see that tape again? I said, you want me to show you the tape now before the game? We got to see it again. So I called Jess up and he, I said, they want to see the tape again. Is there any way we can show this in the locker room? So he goes in and he rigs it up where they're watching this thing in the locker room. 
they come out and I, I coached for 43 years and I don't think I had a team that fired up ever. In fact, if you go to YouTube, I try to look that film up. The only thing they have on film was after the coin toss, our whole team rushes the field. And they told me that, because I talked to Karam Koch about this, they told me they were going to do it. And I told them I didn't want them to do it. They didn't care. They went out. We got a 15-yard penalty. And and it which really worked out because because um, Al Groh took the wind and, and they moved the ball to the 50 yards. I thought it was kicked out of bounds anyway. <laughs> so um, we got the ball on the 20-yard line. But uh, we played – we were both sides of the ball. Kicking game, we were like fired up, especially the first half. Then we had a little low in the third quarter. Then we picked it up in the fourth quarter. But um, I'd like to show that film on um, on f- football by Friedgen and and search and show the how the kids played. And I talked to uh, to Jess, and he has uh, he has pictures of them taking the, watching the film in the locker room, which we'd like to put up on the thing too. So uh, it. it it's a little coming attractions. I think the kids are going to kick out it too. And Scott McBride was on that team. So you might ask him about that. If it's him. So uh, to finish off the rapid fire, it's, you know, Maryland's last season, maybe in the traditional-ish Big Ten before uh, who, who knows how many schools get added. Could you give us a record prediction for the upcoming Maryland season? Well, I looked at their schedule. They should do, if all things go to plan, they should be. They should win the first six games, as I look at. It. And then they got to stay healthy, because down the stretch they got the they got the real tough games down the stretch. And I believe, you know, and I and I told Mike this. What has to happen for Maryland to punch through is they got to beat Ohio State, or they've already beaten Penn State. They can beat Penn State, Ohio State, or Michigan. And they have to do that by not making the key mistakes. If they'll do that, if they'll let Ohio State beat themselves, and it can be done. I, I would be using that the Ohio State game where they went for two and didn't make it, that they can play with Ohio State. I would I'm I'm a great guy and I'm saying what's it gonna take to motivate these guys to be ready to go? I would think about that during the summer and re- make notes for each game. And start building on that on, on on Monday of that week, so by Friday, they were they were fired up, ready to go, you know, and that's what they got to do because right now they got to have confidence they can win in that in that environment, you know, in that game. So what's the number? What are we looking at? Yeah, I I think they got a good chance to win eight games. Okay, between Ohio State, they got the quarterback back. You know, it's it's, it's going to be how how well the lines hold up. Yeah. Between Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan, do you think Maryland is going to take one of those games? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you heard it here first. I, the... I would, I, I would, I would say I think they can take two of them. Well, Maryland fans would certainly be happy to hear that. We were obviously happy to hear stories from you. So Brendan's going to wrap it up for us, but just wanted to say thank you for hopping on. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, Coach. Thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate your time. Well. Uh... 
we'll keep keep updated with the football by Friedgen series, and uh, thank you very much. If listening to one of the best coaches in all of Maryland history doesn't get you fired up for this season, I don't know what will, boys. Yeah, like, I mean, football's back. It's in the air. Uh, falls around the around the corner, and I think this year is a year that Terps fans can get really excited for their football team um, because this could be Mike Loxley's best team that he's had here in College Park. It absolutely could be. Although, you know, losing a lot of seniors and a lot of people over the offseason to the transfer portal and just to the draft and all types of things, I think will make some of the first games harder than some people may think. Yeah, I think having that kind of easily, easier way into it with Towson, with Charlotte, Virginia is going to be terrible. Um, so I think those first three games, I think having time to kind of gel and, and maybe have you can work out some stuff that you might not if you had a tough non-conference opponent will definitely help them. And listening to quotes from this team from the offseason, they're ready to compete with the rest of the Big Ten. They believe they belong in that upper echelon of teams, and it's going to be exciting to see what they do. I remember Talia at Media Day, he said that they think they can but compete for the Big Ten title, and that's the expectation. I know Coach Loxley reiterated that same message, and it's, it's going to be exciting to watch. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest things that Coach Friesen talked about was getting over the hump. You know, he talked about it now with Loxley, as Loxley knows this place. You know, he's done a good job kind of re, you know, invigorating the program, um, but it's kind of been still a struggle against the Penn States, the Michigans, the Ohio States, and you know, Coach Friedgen thinks they can get two of them. He said I mean, he gave a bold record prediction. Yeah, so I mean, that was kind of wild. So, um, but it'll be interesting to see if they can get over that hump because obviously they get Penn State and Michigan at home. Ohio State's going to be tough on the road, but potentially stealing one of those games, I think that would really signify to College Park that Maryland is on a really high trajectory. And in the spirit of that, Brendan, Mike, and a little preview for the season. We're not fully in there. Um, this Saturday's the uh, first upcoming game against Towson. I have some categories and some questions for you guys. So Let's we're going to go back and forth. Um, I'll ask a question. One of you will answer. Game on, Brendan. And we're going to see. Winner take off. We're going to mm-hmm. see which person, what you guys are thinking. So for one, Mike, I'm going to ask you. We're going to start off with a big question. Does Talia Tugavaloa finish as the best quarterback in the Big Ten? No. Oh, and say no. So what? what's the reason? Because he's kind of heading into it. Him and J.J. McCarthy, I think, are pretty close. But statistically, Talia is the you know highest productive um, returning quarterback. I just think he's too inconsistent when it comes to big games. We've seen in the past he struggles with interceptions. Will that problem come back again this year? Who knows? I know he lessened it last year. It was about like eight interceptions. But it's still a problem that has bit Maryland football in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing to look forward to is he did play well in the big games other than Penn State when he was injured. Michigan played well. Ohio State played very well. Um, but I think I would agree with you, Mike, the verdict on that. I think J.J. McCarthy finishes as the as a top quarterback. For Brendan now, does Sean Barnum make the first team all Big Ten as a linebacker this year? I'll say no to that as well. No to that as well. Barnum's going to have to be good this year. So what do you think? Is it is this a sign that Maryland's defense might take a big step back, losing, obviously, Bennett and Banks? I don't know if it's necessarily that. I think that he's clearly the defensive focus when you look at other teams, you know, scouting the Maryland defensive pass rush um, and, and second, or just Maryland defense in general. He's going to be one of the main focuses. So I think that they're going to put a lot of pressure on him and other people are going to step up, step up and take part of the load. So I don't think it'll have quite as big of an impact in year two. I got you. I, I respect that. I think that Barnum is going to be their best defensive player, but I can see why other linebackers might get the notoriety. Okay, we've had two no's. Mike, 
Here's a question for you. Does Maryland enter into Columbus undefeated and potentially ranked? They have five games before that, I believe. It's Towson, Charlotte, Virginia, I think Indiana, and then I don't remember the Michigan State game. is between Virginia Michigan and Indiana. State. So those five games, do you think they head into Columbus undefeated? Yes. 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 So are they ranked at that point? I think that they might win all their non-ranked games this year. So that's your that's what you're thinking. You think yeah. they So you think they're potentially 5 and 0 heading into Columbus. 5 and 0. Yeah. Maybe trying to take down the Buckeyes. If there was a game that I think that they'll for sure for sure lose this season, it will be that one. Ohio State. Yeah. So that leads into my next question for Brendan, and it's a big one. Brendan, does Maryland do what they haven't done in the past and pick off one of the top three Big Ten teams? Do the Terps beat Michigan, Penn State, or Ohio State? I'm gonna I'm gonna say no to that as well. I I know that they're gonna give all those teams a good run. But I just don't think Maryland has it in them this year to have enough firepower to get over those teams. Okay, so do you think which game is the closest? Michigan. Michigan at home? I think I agree with that. I think Michigan. End of the season. In between, for Michigan in their schedule, they play Penn State, then Maryland, then Ohio State. Trap game. Trap game. I think if they win one, it's Michigan at home. And then now, in the spirit of you know friendly friendly competition i want to hear both of yours record prediction and who your team mvp is this year so how many games are there there's 12 12 games not including a bowl game mm-hmm. brendan you want to start us off i'm gonna say seven and five wow big step back what's before you say team mvp what's the main reason i just i, I know a lot of people have been very high on this team but in true and and you know until I truly see it on the field in some of those bigger games, I don't see why they're going to really outperform themselves last year. I, I, I don't I don't hate the idea of them taking it. Losing the O-line, I think, could be a bigger thing than people think. And then who's your team MVP? Um, Roman Hemby. Roman Hemby. Okay. Mike? Nine and three. Mm. I th- again, I think they win every single game other than the ranked ones. Maybe they steal one of them at home. And then for team MVP, this is going to be a sleeper one, but I think Jaquan Shepard. He's going to be a starting cornerback. He's coming in, taking over for Deontay Banks and Ja'Korian Bennett. This is a situation he's been in the past. At Cincinnati just last year, he took over after starter Sauce Gardner. You might have heard of him. And Kobe Bryant were drafted, so he's prepared for this situation. Got all AAC last year, so I think it'll be surprising and interesting to watch him. I think Maryland has always had very strong cornerbacks looking at the past six years. In terms of getting drafted into the NFL, the past defense is not like it hasn't correlated, which is so weird. That's what, like they have good players, they have good people to put up good numbers and be very strong in the gym. But on the field, their smarts, their ability to make huge plays, they're just not there. I think the pass rush too. When's the last time a Maryland pass, other than Ngakwe, was the last one that was a notorious or made an impact? Yeah, yeah, that made a notorious play. Chop Robinson transferred to Penn State, so I think the pass rush also has to do. But not to get sidetracked, my record prediction. I'm going to split the middle. I'm going eight and four. I think they lose all three, and then they drop one of the games that, you know, Maryland always seems to lose, like a Michigan State on the road or something like that. And then my team MVP, Brennan stole mine with Roman Hemby. Um, so I'm just going to be basic and say, or actually, you know what? I'll change it. I'm going to go Bo Braid. I think that he could have a, a really good year. Um, safety. I think he could be in the top three rounds drafted. Sleeper pick the Corey Deitches. Oh, he could have a big have year a this year, year, especially with the pre-leaving. Um, he was second on the team yeah. for receiving yards and touchdowns. I just could. I think like, he could have a huge year, and he he's that athletic tight end that always mm-hmm. seems to thrive. 
But that's football. First game this Saturday, Towson. You know College Park will be bumping for that one. Um, but there's sports that are already in play right now. And one of the teams who is returning a lot and is having a, you know, a pretty good start to the year is the men's soccer team. Um, they are starting some young people. Brendan, we know that you are kind of our, our guy for soccer. Tell us about what you've been seeing from Sasha's squad. Yeah, Sam, I've watched both of the Maryland soccer games so far with a close eye, coming in so far with a 1-1 one one record. Dropped the first game, looked very flat. Maryland came out with very little energy. You know, a lot of these guys, they played together probably in practice and throughout the spring, but they had never been on the same field together in a competitive game against a strong team, and I think you saw that in the first game. And second game, they came out significantly stronger, had energy from the jump. No one scored in the first half, but second half played significantly better, got multiple chances on goal, and finally two of them hit the back of the net. The theme for this season is, is definitely going to be, you know, Maryland is still ranked um, preseason the top Big Ten soccer team, but I still kind of consider it a bit of a rebuilding year with losing so many people to the drafts. And so I, I just think it's going to be hard for them to make a huge impact in, in the tournament. Um, but they'll still win a lot of games and, and be a fun team to watch. This upcoming Friday playing Wake Forest at home. Wake Forest comes in at 1-0-1. Always a strong team. Going to be a tough name. Like Sam said, the key to this year is it's going to be a lot of freshmen. Started four freshmen at the game on Sunday. So it's going to be a lot of learning. But I think they'll be a team that can win a lot of games. Yeah, I think, like Brendan said, I think this is going to be a transition year for them. Obviously, they have you know players who were in a decently sized role last year, Colin, Gif- Colin Griffith, Max Riley, um, coming back to this year's team. But when you're bringing in so many new kids, especially early on in soccer, soccer is such a chemistry-dependent um, you know, game. So I think that just you got to give some, this team time if you're a Maryland fan. You know, Maybe I think towards the end of the year they could really start to round into form because they always recruit well and they always bring in talented kids. But it's just going to take a little bit of um, a little bit of gelling for their for their unit. It's kind of the same with the women's soccer team. Um, when we look at this squad, um, friend of the pod, Coach Megan Ryan Nemzer, um, they are 0-1 and 3 on the season, which is a very similar trend to last year when they drew a million games. Um, so they are they've tied three times and then Sam wishes lost. he was exaggerating there. Yeah, uh, not an exaggeration, <laughs> but they just tied again 2-2 to James Madison um, recently on Sunday. August 27th. Um, it's been kind of a, a weird start to the season. They've really struggled on offense, only scoring 1.25 goals a game, which is pretty low, obviously. But their defense has been very solid, only allowing 1.5. You know, saves have been up, 18 saves on the year. And they're really just kind of playing that slow, grinded out game that I think is not limiting the offense, but that's the type of style they want to dictate because I, I think – to be honest, Nemzer knows that she doesn't have the talent to compete and play in a high, you know, up-tempo game. So I think she kind of wants to bog the game down a little bit. And top scorer from last year, Hope Rose, is back to her scoring habits from last year. She's leading the team in scoring again, but they are missing a couple guys from last year. They're missing BB Donrat, Riley Donnelly, Emma DeBurndine, Danny Van Rootslar, and Leah Kraus. There's four grad students and one senior out of that bunch. So they are missing a lot of experience this year, but... Hope Rose is back, top scorer, so we'll see where that team goes. And I I think it's going to be the same story as last year. As far as this offense goes, the team will go. The offense is going to be the strong suit throughout the whole season. Yeah, I agree, Mike. I think that when you look at this team, it's always year in, year out, consistently ranked in the top 10, top 5 in the country. It's just really making sure that you're following through on, you know, the late late prowess of, of the season when you hit the tough tougher teams. 
and their offense obviously kind of fell off towards the end last right. year. So maintaining you know high goal scoring will, will be important. Mm-hmm. And be able to maintain a defense too to back up that high scoring because you can score as much as you want, but if you can't play defense too, there there's an issue. Got to strike a balance for sure. Mm-hmm. And as we head into you know fall, one of the sports I think sometimes people forget is in the fall is volleyball. And it's a squad that is starting out, you know, pretty decent. They've struggled in recent years, but that's the volleyball team. Brendan, what have they been up to? Yeah, Sam and Mike. Uh, Adam Hughes definitely on the hot seat. No, uh, I'm only kidding. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> no. Um, for listeners, last year um, we would we'd always talk about kind of the how the Maryland women's volleyball team is very good out of conference and in conference they truly struggle. And what does that mean for coaching security? And that's the exact same pattern I think we're going to have this year. Maryland doesn't face a ranked team until three weeks when they face off against Purdue, but that is when the challenge really starts in the Big Ten. That's where all those ranked teams are. Maryland's ranked ninth in the Big Ten preseason rankings, but looking closer ahead in the schedule, they have the Kristen Dickman Invitational this weekend in Annapolis facing off against Old Dominion, Utah Valley, and Navy, and I would expect Maryland to take all three of those games. They're going to have a strong start before they start facing Big Ten play probably have a pretty solid record only a couple losses that i see in there but as soon as you face the big 10 it's going to be very tough do you see them having a positive big 10 win record here above 500 i would say that's gonna be tough i'll say it's i think it'll be close i think it'll be like 390 and then the end of year will they be above 500 or not yeah i think i think they'll finish above mm -hmm. 500 because they're gonna win a ton of their preseason games or preseason meaning pre-Big Ten games. Correct. A lot of the teams they faced were, you know, outside of the top 50 overall teams last year. And so, you know, this team, it's solid, but it's 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 really hard to win a lot of games in conference when every night you're kind of getting, in a sense, beat up by the top five teams in the country. It's just hard to gain a lot of momentum when you're going in and losing pretty handedly. Yeah, I think that this team is, Hughes has got to find a couple big wins is, is I think, one of the big things is, you really, even if you're not, you know, dominating in Big Ten play, showing progress, showing signs that you're able to compete against them. Exactly, and they did that a couple times last year, and I think yeah. doing that is, is how you build a program. I mean, it's not that no one's really going to expect you to go from the ninth team in preseason rankings to win the Big Ten. I mean, that would be an insane story, right. but you can expect to slowly over the years make progress and, and mm-hmm. go up that ladder. Definitely. And now that wraps up all of our fall sports, so we got to talk about the summer. It's true. We missed a lot of stuff that went down in the summer. The biggest thing that I was seeing on social media, and hopefully we'll get someone in studio to talk about it, is the Italy trip that the men's basketball team took to kind of integrate some of those transfers and freshmen. Yeah, um, obviously this team had a huge news with Jameer Young coming back, Dante Scott coming back, Hakeem Hart really the only starter leaving, um, and Don Carey. But you know, bringing in some transfers, Jordan Geronimo, um, a couple of stud freshmen, um, Jamie Kaiser apparently had, and Deshaun Harris-Smith had disgusting trips in Italy. I mean, the reports were saying they looked strong, although you never know. You never know. You never know. And that's what I think we'll have a guest in here to maybe tell us a little firsthand about what they saw. But if those two can come in, Mike, and play a prominent role, how big is that for this team? I think that there might be no more court stormings in the future just because of how good Maryland basketball will be. Stole my line. Wow. I did? I said that all the time last year. Do you want to add on? What do you... I think this team will be ranked in the top 15 for most mm-hmm. of the season. Right. So both of you are extremely high on them, and I'm sure that College Park, as much as they love football, basketball is, is what they look forward to. So basketball, back in swing. Italy trip was big. Um, 
But the, actually, the most successful team, potentially, in terms of conference success, was a team that faced some bad news in the offseason, the baseball squad. Yeah. Lost to lost in their regional, but won the Big Ten, won the Big Ten tournament even. Definitely a success there. First time ever. Of course. But then a blow that none of us really saw coming. Rob Vaughn gone to Alabama. Mike, you covered baseball last year. Would you? Did you know about this? Were you surprised? Take us through what happened. So... First and foremost, if you're a Maryland baseball fan, you have to hope that this is the last time in a while that there will be a coaching change because it's just been one after another of coaches using Maryland as a stepping ground and then going elsewhere. Um, but there, Coach Rob Vaughn, he had been talking to teams in the offseason before. And, you know, as Damon Evans said at Swope's press conference, they were prepared. They had a succession plan in place. Um, but... You had to know that this was going to come at some point with Vaughn. He's getting paid 900000 annually in his new contract at Alabama compared to the 300000 he was getting paid at Maryland. So there's a big difference there. And then conference strength and how good the facilities are. There's also the disparity there. So this was going to happen at some point. Happened last summer, and you got to hope Swope, who's the Maryland man, he grew up here, he played here, he coached here under Vaughn you got to hope that he's just going to stay here and cement his legacy at Maryland. Mike, i got to ask you, if you're if you're on the baseball team or you're a big fan of it, is it frustrating to see Vaughn take other players? I mean, the big name that's coming to me now is Ian Petrutz. And Petrutz, if he had stayed, he would have been a, a big part of this Maryland lineup. Most likely would have been the 3-4 hitter. So th- th- that's got to be frustrating if you're on the team. But at the same time, they have leaders on this team who stayed. They have Kenny Lipman, who's, who's going to be – have a strong role in this rotation. They have Kevin Keister, who's going to be the shortstop. So they still have guys here. Hacopian, too. Hacopian, Eddie Hacopian. And his, and his brother transferred here. So they still have guys, and Swope is building his program. If those guys want to go out to Alabama, that's fine. Swope will keep his guys in-house, and they'll build Swope's culture. I think that uh, it's just like if a player, if a coach can leave, it seems like a player should also mm-hmm. be Oh, absolutely. Leave. But for fans, I totally get like, like – Rob Vaughn preached how much he loved Maryland, all of this type of, you know, flowery talk. And then the second you leave, you're trying to purge players, basically. Right. And there was another coaching change in the offseason, too. Yeah, across softball From coach. one diamond to the next. It's going to look very different in the spring. What do you see there, Sam? Honestly, I was pretty surprised. I covered softball um, last year for the Diamondback, and, and it was honestly one of the more surprising news of the offseason. Uh, Montgomery had just came off their best season. They were clearly trending upwards. I hadn't heard any whispers of you know any sort of res- resign or anything like that. I had heard some stuff about you know players potentially leaving the program, but didn't really think anything of it. And then Montgomery just was decided to resign due to personal personal reasons um i don't i'm not going to speculate i don't know anything more than just the press release um but they've been pretty tight-lipped about it and i think as maryland kind of searches now they're still looking yeah they, they still right now have an interim so yeah have not i mean i think damon evans was pretty shocked by it too from um like what you can gauge now and that they don't have a person in waiting you know they clearly don't have somebody that they're like they were set on once montgomery left I think this is a pretty big blow to the softball program, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if they took a step back this year. Have players transferred out? Has it they been? Have. They have. But it was mostly before Montgomery left. So do you think they knew beforehand something was going to drop? Or I don't. Just I, I, mean, I don't know. I'm not going to. It's just best guess. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really know. But um, 
I, most of the people that transferred out, I, I had an idea that they would transfer. It's going to be a tough year for Maryland softball. They bring back players, which is the thing, but just in that... In, it's so hard to recruit. To have that type of thing drop just in the offseason when stuff is happening and you feel... The players have to feel like we had this momentum. You know, we didn't make the playoffs, but this was our first time making like the NIT of softball in a while. And then your coach just resigns. It's got to be like a blow. And then you're going to have... You know this in this fall, there's a transfer portal window. Coaches are going to be asking Courtney Weish, Jada McFarlane, you know... Megan McCami, hey, you don't have a coach. Why don't you come play for us? Montgomery already talked about how schools were recruiting Jada McFarland while he was there. It's only going to increase. So I think I agree with Brendan. We'll have to see who they who they end up naming. But um, I mean, any player who was going to commit is now seriously questioning it. It's just going to be tough. Yeah, it'll be a tough year, but in my opinion, but that that's that's all of our hits from the summer and now we're back to the fall and and back to one of our favorite segments that's our college football picks so basically um each of us make three picks a week um surrounding spreads over unders money lines whatever you may have it and then we are going to keep track and at the end of the year reveal the records last year mike took home the crown i think i still owe mike his prize so i'll get you on do that. owe yeah, me my we prize do, we do owe mike his prize but um listeners if you guys have any picks that you think we should add to our hypothetical cards and let us know in the in the comments of, of our tweets or, or the comments of our episodes so mike you won last year get us started with week one all right so to start this back-to-back campaign i'm going to take alabama favored by 39 points against middle tennessee alabama will absolutely destroy teams at the beginning of the season and then utah state underdogs by 25 against iowa that seems like a pretty big number for Iowa to be favored by. I just kind of don't respect that football program. <laughs> and then last, I'm going to take Colorado, the underdog, by 21 against number 17, TCU. Them as a three-touchdown dog in Dion's first game seems like a lot. Yeah, I don't hate any of those picks. Bama always seems to roll week one. On to mine, Fresno State, Purdue, over 50.5 points. Both teams score a lot of points. I'm excited to watch that game. Um, and I just think that that one's going to easily cross that threshold hudson carter purdue i think purdue could be a sleepy good team this year and then i have south and north carolina and a little inter not interstate but bordering state conflict um over 63 and a half drake may spencer rattler two of the top quarterbacks this year um i think that game's going to be super fun to watch so make sure you tune into that one and then um east carolina covering 35 and a half against michigan um east carolina's actually not didn't have a terrible season last year and uh, Michigan is without Jim Harbaugh. They always tend to kind of start off slow in, in week one when I've watched them. I'm going to take the Pirates to cover 35 and a half. Good picks by Sam. Now we're moving on to some picks that might be a little more questionable Just for our audience. Just to let the podcast audience know, if you didn't listen last year, Brendan is notorious for picking random games. And he usually is right, and then sometimes it's just for a bit, but they're all electric to hear. So yeah, so I got Salisbury plus nothing. Um, <laughs> First game I'll pick is BC minus eight and a half against Northern Illinois. I like that. BC should really beat up on them. Early season game, they should be fired up. Um, second game, I'd like to take Miami minus 17 over Miami. <laughs> Which one? I'd like to take Miami, Florida. Uh, I was thinking if anybody would pick onto that. Um, and then this one I feel very confident in. Um, UMass plus 36 and a half over Auburn. 36 and a half is so many points. And UMass won last week, so... They're fired up. Go UMass. Go Minutemen. I mean, they might be 2-0 and again after they play Auburn. Beating Auburn. War Eagle. More like War Minutemen. <laughs> so that'll do it for our college football picks. And now our final segment, Fired Up That It's Back. 
Terrific Terp. Basically, again, we're just going to tell everybody if, you know, for new listeners, um, Terrific Terp, every week, Brendan introduced a Maryland legend of the past that might be kind of unknown, but their stories are pretty incredible. We've had some amazing stories from boxers to famous golfers to coaches to dual sport athletes. Um, it was a wild ride, and this week, nobody better to do it than Mr. Wyself. So take it away, Brendan. Bless us. It's been a long episode, so I'll give you a nice, quick Terrific Terrapin. This week's Terrific Terrapin is Alfred Duke Wire. Although Wire never scored a touchdown, hit a home run, or scored a goal for the University of Maryland, he was pivotal to the success of the sports teams. That's because from 1947 to 1967, he was the head athletic trainer. Wire was influential in helping open Bird Stadium while also helping the football team to four top five finishes during his time. He was a trainer for the 1953 National Championship football team, and he was the head trainer for the United States Naval Academy team during the 1960 Olympic Games held in Rome. He was inducted into the Helms Athletic Trainer Hall of Fame and the Maryland Athletics Hall of Fame. However, his greatest achievement that is still recognized today is from the Duke Wire shoulder vest, a protective device for football players to use against shoulder dislocations and separations. So whenever you see football players out there wearing those pads and wearing those sockets and, and wearing those types of things to keep their shoulders in place, That's that was all wire. Maryland's had some great trainers. We brought a Tyler Cronin. I was about to say, we opened last year with a trainer as our <laughs> first interview. We, we opened year. it with a trainer for a terrific trainer. I was trying to go for someone fun. You know, we had uh, uh-huh. some people have been calling her the GOAT, Irene Knox. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's been uh, it's been a wild first episode. Really cool interview with Coach Friedgen. We're excited football's back. We're excited that all the other fall sports are back. And most of all, we're excited to be a part of Testudo Times and kick this awesome season underway. So thank you again for listening. This was uh, Under the Shell, Season 3, Episode 1. Have a good night.